Would you open up to Genesis chapter 24? The title is The Divine Matchmaker. Already sounds like a love story, doesn't it? And it is. And we are going to cover a lot of territory, so I got to get going. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for every day that you give to us. We are so blessed, so very blessed when I think of so many people in other countries who cannot do what we are doing right now, sitting here with sisters in Christ, with Bibles opened to study your word freely. So we, again, thank you for that privilege. And I pray you would open up countries that don't have that privilege in your mighty, miraculous way. Now, Father, we have such a long lesson, so much to cover, and it's just so rich in typology that I just asked your spirit to fill me, to um, help me again, as always, to, to speak clearly, my mind to be clear, my words to be clear, my thoughts, all of our thoughts to be focused so that we would um, hear what your spirit has to say to us this morning and that Jesus and Jesus alone would be lifted up because that is the desire of our heart always. And so go before us now and we ask these things in that name, that name above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen. In Genesis 22, verse 19, if you want to flip back there for one second, We are told, you know, last time we were together, we left Abraham and Isaac up on Mount Moriah, didn't we? And uh, he didn't have to go through with this sacrifice of Isaac. It was an almost sacrifice, but then he did have the actual animal sacrifice of the ram, and that's kind of where we left things. Well, in verse 19, we are told that Abraham returned unto his young men. Remember the two men with the donkey and the supplies? He returned to those two young men from Mount Moriah. But there is a strange omission of Isaac's name. It just says Abraham returned. That's strange because who did also return with Abraham? Isaac. Isaac didn't die up there. Isaac did return, just as the Lord, I mean, just as Abraham had prophesied he would. Remember, he said, we will both return to you, and they both did. What we find is that there is a typological purpose for that omission. It is to picture the physical absence of the Lord Jesus during the church age which we are living in. Church began, day of Pentecost, it will end at the rapture. This is the church age. So this is to picture his physical absence. Isaac is made to seem as though he is absent, still up on Mount Moriah. So as to picture the Lord Jesus in heaven while down here on earth, His bride is being readied and and secured for him during his physical absence. So 
the typology of Christ in Isaac continues. It, it was, we saw Christ in Isaac by way of his miraculous conception. Then we saw Christ in Isaac by way of his sacrifice on Mount Moriah, you know, carrying the wood and all that. But that typology, that picture of Christ in Isaac continues in the Genesis 24 record of Abraham sending forth his faithful servant, who is probably Eliezer, to secure a bride for Isaac. The divine matchmaker account of Isaac and Rebekah serves as a beautiful prophetic picture of Christ and the church, Christ and his bride. The Genesis narrative does not mention Isaac's physical presence after his almost sacrifice on Moriah until we don't hear about Isaac being present again until the end, the very end of Genesis chapter 24. And when we see him again, this is just fantastic. Guess what he's doing? He has just come forth from his father's house (laughs) to personally meet and escort his bride to her new home. Are you getting the picture already? Are you getting the picture? This is like the rapture of the church. The description that's given to us at the end of this chapter, the description of the mutually electric eye-to-eye meeting, first meeting between Isaac and Rebekah. They both lift up at their eyes and look at each other at the same time. And it's, wow, it's in a moment, and it's something else. But that is a prophetic picture of the great yet future day when our bridegroom will come forth from his father's house to escort his beloved bride, the church, to our eternal dwelling place with him. You see, although the church was an unknown mystery to the Old Testament prophets, did the Old Testament prophets know about the church? Nothing. They did not know about the church. Paul said it was a mystery. So it's a mystery to them, but I got news for you. Do you think it was a mystery to the Lord? (laughs) Of course not. He knew all about the church. Um, And he gave little preview snapshots of her in typological passages, such as what we have here in Genesis 24. We have a typological picture of the church in Rebecca. And by the way, this chapter is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. It is 67 verses long. And when you think about that, just think about that a minute, okay? It is really fascinating to realize that the book that contains the creation account 
of the entire universe and the fall of man and the cataclysmic global judgment of God on sin by way of a flood and then his intervention at Babel which resulted in the development of nations and languages and cultures and races, etc. In a book like that, that contains all that stuff, yet the longest chapter is about a servant's mission to find a bride for his master's son. A servant's mission to find a bride for his master's son. Let me see a smile. Are you getting it? Isn't it amazing? And that fact alone, that fact alone is a clue that there is definitely something, you know that song, deep and wide. There is definitely something deeper and wider in Genesis 24 than just that surface level love story, right? That you get in Sunday school. There's a lot more. It's like the comments between two pilots of a DC-9, which my husband flew for over 20 years. DC-9, that's a big one, okay? They're flying as they're carrying passengers across the Pacific Ocean. And after many, many hours of flying over nothing but water, the co-pilot says to the captain, man, the ocean is big. (laughs) To which the captain responds, yeah, and that's just the top of it. (laughs) You see, Genesis 24, Genesis 24 is like an ocean of profound truths. The account of the servant's quest and success in gaining a bride for his master's son is merely the top of it. You see, the rest of the story is so typologically and theologically deep that it actually takes the 27 books of the New Testament to map it all out. That's how deep it is. And today, we're just going to scratch the top of the surface ourselves. But I hope it will give you some hunger. And especially when you get the email lesson, it's a whole lot longer than my hour of talking. (laughs) Wait till you see it. Okay, when Sarah, poor Mercedes, she's going, oh, no. (laughs) She does my proofreading. Uh, when uh, When Sarah died, okay, Sarah died in chapter 23. And Isaac was very distraught. You know, they had a very close relationship. He was kind of what you would call a mama's boy. She loved on that kid. Why wouldn't she? She waited 90 years to have him. <laughs> and so they were very, very close. And he he was distraught for a long time. And when that happened, Abraham finally... I mean, after all, his son is 40 years old, like mine, finally got married at 40. (laughs) It finally dawns on him, it's time to get a bride. (laughs) It's time to get Isaac a wife. His mom is gone. We need to get him a wife. Well, of course, you have to get him a wife. He's going to carry on the messianic line. (laughs) That just makes sense. 
Um, and of course, back in that culture, as it is still today in a lot of countries, it, the marriages were arranged by the, by the parents. Some of us say, oh, I wish that was the way it was here. And, uh, <laughs> and then some of us say, oh, yeah, but when I look back, I would have made some mistakes on that. So I'm glad God's the matchmaker, you know, the divine matchmaker instead of me. But this was the custom. And so he's 140. If Isaac is 40, you know how old his dad is? At 100 years, <laughs> he's 140. So he entrusts the task or the responsibility of finding Isaac a wife to his eldest servant, it tells us. Now, his eldest servant was very likely Eliezer of Damascus. Almost every commentator is agreed on that. And as we get into the story, I think you will agree that that's who this guy was. He has been with uh, Abraham for a long time, a long, long time. And they're actually very similar in their personalities and everything else about them. So Eliezer is, now listen to this. You think he's just a servant? Okay. He is scripture's greatest prophetic type of God the Holy Spirit as far as his task of calling out the bride of Christ is concerned. And even, here's why I say it has to be Eliezer, even his name is perfect. Do you know what Eliezer means? El, God, okay, means God's helper or God's guide. Not, not, not that he's guiding God, but he serves as a guide for God because he is God. You know, the Holy Spirit is God. And it can also mean God's comforter. <laughs> Who is the, par the parakletos, the Holy Spirit, is the comforter. And he truly was. He was Abraham's helper. He was um, uh, 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 Rebecca's guide. We'll see that. Rebecca's guide. And he serves as a comforter by way of the wife he brought for Isaac. Because that wife comforted Isaac in his sorrow over his, his mother's death. But his name is never mentioned in this chapter. 67 verses never mentions his name. We know his name from a previous chapter. Um, and that, again, is because it more adequately port portrays him as the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit does not speak of himself, does he? He doesn't speak of himself. He speaks of, who does he exalt? The Lord Jesus, the Son of God. And so throughout this account, we find even his name is never mentioned, and we never find him speaking of himself. He's always exalting Abraham, God the Father, or Isaac, both of them actually, in his testimony to Rebecca and Rebecca's family. Now, Abraham is asked to swear in the name of Jehovah, the God of heaven and the God of earth, to uphold three promises. You know, Abraham calls him in, to him, 
That's in verse 2. He says, unto his eldest servant of the house that ruled over all that he had. You know, Abraham's really old, and so he's entrusted. Remember, at one time, he thought Eliezer might be the heir to the promises of God because he didn't have any sons. So he really, you know, this this was like a son to him, except they're, well, I don't think Eliezer's 140. Maybe he's 100. I don't know. (laughs) But he is the oldest servant he has. But anyway, he calls him forth, and he's ruling over his whole household, kind of like Joseph did with Potiphar. And he, he tells him he wants him to take an oath in the name of God. And then he gives him three promises that he's vowing he will uphold. Number one, he will not find a wife from the daughters of the Canaanites. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? You don't want your son or daughter to be unequally yoked with pagan worshipers and immoral people, which is what the Canaanites were. Uh, So that was the first promise, not from the Canaanites. Second promise, Isaac would come from Abraham's kindred. Why was that important? Well, for one thing, they needed to be, uh, she needed to be a descendant of Shem. Remember that? Noah's son, Shem. That would be the Messianic lineage. And third, under no circumstances, he makes this really clear. I don't have time to read the passage. 67 verses would take us too much time, and then I'd run out of time, but read it when you get home, okay? Um, but he's, under no circumstances is Isaac to leave the land that he was to inherit, okay? Cannot leave the land, has to stay there. Canaan, it's called at that time, it's called Canaan, but of course it becomes the land of Israel. Do you know that Isaac is the only patriarch who was born in the land, lived his entire life in the land, never left the land, and died in the land? The only patriarch? That's interesting. Then in verse 7, okay, Abraham expresses his strong confidence in the Lord. Now we know this guy's got really strong faith in the Lord. He expresses that when Eliezer asked him, you know, he's been given this assignment, and so he asks him, well, what will I do if the girl I find, you know, this perfect girl to be Isaac's bride, what will I do if she is not willing to return with me to meet Isaac? Which you can imagine if you were in, in her sandals, you might wonder about that too, right? Oh, I'd like to meet this guy first. <laughs> so what if she says that? Uh, and what if she says, well, go get him and bring him back? Uh, wh- what am I supposed to do? And Isaac says, I mean, Abraham, who has confidence in God's leading in this matter, divine matchmaker, he has confidence and he tells uh, Eliezer that God, don't worry about it, God will send forth his angel to ensure the success of his mission. You will find the right girl. Furthermore, um, a maiden, a young girl, who wasn't willing to step out in faith and leave her family, leave her country, to marry the man through whom the promised Savior was to come. Now, this was a girl who believed in the true God 
and knew about the promised Savior, if she wasn't willing to leave everything, as Abraham had done, in order to marry the man through whom the Savior was to come, then she wouldn't be God's choice for Isaac, period. So Abraham told Eliezer he he would be free from his oath if, if she refused the marriage proposal sight unseen, you know, without ever having seen Isaac. He would be freed from his promise. So with that assurance, Eliezer goes ahead in verse 9, and he makes his oath. And then he immediately begins to put together a caravan for his 500-mile trip from Hebron. They're now living back in Hebron. From Hebron to Haran is 500 miles. That's about, if you know how many miles a camel can walk in one day, that's about a three-weeks journey. No days in, no Marriott's, you know, (laughs) tents. Ten camels were needed to transport everything that he carried with him, including men. He took other men's servants with him, not only for protection, but for other needs. Now, the possession of ten camels loaded down for a bride quest, that would convey to everyone who saw them traveling and then to those when they arrived, you know, that would convey considerable wealth of Eliezer's master. They'd see that caravan, they'd say, well, I guess they knew by the way people dressed that he was a servant of someone. So they'd say, boy, his master must really be wealthy. And Abraham was at this point. He was very wealthy. God had blessed him. So what we find is that in verse 10, Eliezer's journey, that whole 500-mile trip is passed over without a single word, no comment on it at all. He departs in verse 10, and he arrives at early evening at a well. Wells are very important in the book of Genesis. That's where they get their water. He arrives at evening at a well that's right outside the city of their destination, which is the city of Haran. That's in verse 11. And early evening is precisely the time of day that the women of that culture would go out to their respective city wells in order to get water for the household, you know, the water that they would need for the dinner meal and all that cleaning and bathing so that was exactly i don't know if he timed that or if god timed it or what happened but that's exactly the time that they arrived was when the women would be coming out to the well Um, and that was a good place for him to observe the young maidens of the city of haran Now, Eliezer had had three weeks of traveling to plan, to meditate about what he would look for in a wife for Isaac. Did he know Isaac? He knew Isaac very well. He'd been with the family Isaac's entire life. So he knew what to look for for Isaac, besides the fact that she had to be 
kindred to Abraham. You know, she had to have a blood relationship. Of course, she must believe in the true God. That was a given. And she must be virtuous, which means she had to be a virgin. And it would be a bonus if she was pleasant to look at. (laughs) You know, at least well-groomed, clean, Nice smile, you know, a smile can make all the difference in the world. My husband will tell me, I'll say, well, how how do I look? And he says, if you smile, you look beautiful. And you're frowning, no, not so. (laughs) Um, I'm sure in that culture it was important to look at her teeth. You know how they always (laughs) say, you look at a horse's teeth. (laughs) Uh, But uh, she should be healthy. She needed to be healthy, okay, because she was going to have to travel back with him 500 miles on the back of a camel. Anyway, but can you imagine riding 500 miles on a camel? You have to be healthy. So he needed to look for a healthy girl. Then when they got back, of course, she would assume the responsibility of a large household of servants. She would be the new Mrs. Sarah. And she needed to have future children, of course, and she did. Oh, my. She had, literally, she had two She had twin quarreling boys. I mean, they started fighting in her womb. So, yeah, Rebecca needed to be healthy. She also needed to be a take-charge kind of a woman. She needed to be industrious. You know what? If you have an unmarried son or daughter, steer them away from a spouse who is lazy. That, that is one of the top, I mean, have to be a believer, but way up there, I don't want laziness. You don't want a lazy, do you? A lazy spouse? So she, she shouldn't be lazy. She should be industrious and decisive, you know, not wishy-washy, but decisive. And I, I, the last thing Isaac needed was a spoiled, self-indulgent, wife, you know, one who merely wanted him because he was wealthy and she could therefore, you know, live a life of ease and comfort. That's not what Eliezer was looking for. He would be inclined to appreciate a young lady who was gracious, well-mannered, considerate of others, including strangers. It would be important for her also to have a good relationship with her parents. And and that's not always possible, but that's what you ideally want. And with the rest of her family, these would all be desirable qualities for a wife, for Isaac, or actually for anyone's spouse. Now, since it would be difficult to make these kind of discerning assessments of every daughter of the city who would come out to the well, you know, can't assess all of them at one time, what Eliezer did is he immediately prayed. And his prayer was very, very specific, very specific. He asked for kindness to be shown to his master. You see who who he's thinking about? Kindness not to him to get this job over with quick. He wants the Lord to be kind to his master um, by by leading him quickly to the right damsel. So he's asking for God's kindness and and quick kindness. How about that? Quick kindness. (laughs) 
<laughs> he's kind of laying out a fleece, isn't he? He's, he's basically asking for a sign so that he would know which girl was the right girl. So what he does is he asks God for a girl who, when he asks her for a drink of water, she will give him that drink kindly, okay, uh, nicely. And not only that, but then she will volunteer. She will make the generous offer to also water his camels. Now, this is in verses 13 and 14. That would be very unusual, especially for a young female. Why? Well, I had to get on the internet. I was looking up camels, all right? How how much water can a camel drink? Did you know that a really thirsty camel can drink as many as 53 gallons in three minutes? 53 gallons? Um... But an average, an average camel, you know, now I don't know how thirsty these camels were because I don't know the last time they went, they were at a well and drank. Okay. But an average camel, if he, when he got to the well, would drink from four to ten gallons. All right. Now I'm being generous because there were people that said a lot more than this. Okay. So how many camels did Eliezer have? Where's Lynn Jones? Got to ask. <laughs> okay. Ten camels. Now, if each one can drink from four to ten gallons, that means 40 to 100 gallons of water. All right. Now, they didn't have garden hoses. This means that Rebecca would, and she comes with a pitcher. All right, a pitcher. It says a pitcher on her shoulder. So she would have to, and the well, by the way, if you read it, is a well where you go down steps to get to the water and up steps. So she would, <laughs> she would have to hand carry with one pitcher um, up and down the steps 40 to 100 gallons of water. I'll tell you what, any girl who would do that would be, make my son a great wife. <laughs> right? Y'all agree? <laughs> Well, unknown to Eliezer. Now, this is his laying out the fleece. This is what he wants. He says, this is the, this will be the girl. <laughs> not only does she give me a drink of water, but she'll volunteer and do it. Not just volunteer, she'll actually do it. She'll water all the, the camels. So, but unknown to him, as he's praying, it reminds me of Daniel. As he's praying, his answer is being fulfilled right then. He'd ask for speed, right? Do this quickly. And Rebecca is actually on her way to the well. Uh, before he might face distraction from some other damsel, God, the divine matchmaker, sent a young virgin. I guess they knew who was a virgin by the way they dressed. I don't know if they didn't have a veil, I think is what it was. But a young virgin who was very fair to look upon, it tells us, came to the well. He sees her. She's the first one there. What's that tell you about her? Mm, she's not a procrastinator, right? First one there. And he watches her, very fair to look upon. She goes down the steps 
to the water, fills her pitcher, and as she's coming back up the steps, it tells us Eliezer, this is verse 17, Eliezer ran. He asked for speed, so he's going to be speedy himself. (laughs) So he runs to her, and he asks her for a drink. Now, she's probably likely surprised that a man... Now, here's something interesting, too. Do you know Rebecca was Syrian? She was from the area of Syria, which is where Haran is. She's Syrian. Where is Eliezer from? Damascus. He's a fellow Syrian. I don't know if they spoke, what language they spoke, but she could tell by his accent that he was one of them. But she's surprised that a man with a retinue of so many camels and servants needed her to give him a drink? (laughs) So, you know, so her response could have been a rather unenthusiastic, well, all right, I'll give you some water, but why don't you have your own pitcher? I'm sure you must with all those camels and stuff over there. Or why don't you ask one of your men? to give you a drink of water. It's kind of strange. Wouldn't you think that's kind of strange? Or here's what else she could have said. My mother told me not to talk to strangers, so goodbye. (laughs) But instead, she demonstrated gentle kindness. I mean, she, she was polite. She said, drink, my Lord. You know what that's comparable to hearing today, which is so rare and so refreshing, a little kid that says, yes, ma'am. She says, drink, my Lord. She was displaying grace in dealing with a total stranger who was also an elderly man. She's polite. She's willing to be of assistance. Little did Rebecca know that by her kindness to a complete stranger, she would become the bride. I don't know why this is hitting me. But she would become the bride of a godly man in an extremely significant covenant relationship with the God of the universe. Little did she realize that one drink of water would bring her into the lineage of the Savior of the world. Little did she realize that her extended hospitality to an old servant would result in her becoming the mother of Jacob, one of those twins, whose name was changed to Israel, and she would become the grandmother of the 12 tribes of Israel. You see what one little thing, how it can affect your life? One little act of kindness can change everything. I remember when I was a a flight attendant with TWA. You remember TWA, those of you that are older? And I worked at Chicago O'Hare Airport, which is huge and massive. And I was, uh, I I don't like to fly, which is why I married a pilot and why (laughs) my son is a pilot. I don't like to fly. So I was what you call a ground hostess. And I was the one who would meet the plane and get a wheelchair for somebody, you know. And if there was a VIP, I would take them to the lounge and all that kind of stuff. 
Well, one day there was this German woman and I went to get her in a wheelchair and I was nice and talked to her and everything and I took her to her next flight. And um, normally I didn't ex take tips. People didn't tip me. I don't know why they should have tipped me. But she, she tipped me and she gave me and I didn't even recognize it because it was German money. What they call German, a mark or something? Yeah. So she gave me this dollar bill. And I said, no, 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 no. And she insisted. And I said, no, 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 ma'am. I don't want to say And she insisted. So I said, thank you, thank you. And he took it. And then it was like weeks before I finally got to a bank and I was going to cash it in. It was $100. <laughs> so you see, you never know. One little act of kindness. But boy, this was great with Rebecca. Now, can you imagine? We've been talking about spiritual heartburn in this study. Can you imagine Eliezer's spiritual heartburn when then, after he took a little drink of water from her pitcher, she voluntarily said, I will draw water for thy camels also until they have done drinking. <laughs> Ooh, that was the precise. Have you ever had a prayer request come true so precisely? You just, you just, you can't believe it. You just fall on your face praising the Lord. But that was the precise condition he had, you know, he had asked for when he laid out his fleece just minutes earlier. Giving him a drink of water, I mean, that's one thing, but offering to water those 10 camels until they had done drinking, that's something quite different. It meant going up and down those well steps innumerable times, you know, just a huge job. That's what you call going the second mile, right? She certainly went the second mile. And she didn't procrastinate again. She, she got right to it. Verse 20 says, look at this. She hasted. Everybody in this chapter is running around. They're, you know, he had asked for things to be done speedily. And that's exactly what's happening. She hasted and emptied her pitcher into the trough and ran again unto the well to draw water and drew for half of his camels and quit. What does it say? All. She drew for all his camels. It was a long, difficult job. They said it could take an hour or two for her to have done this. Especially for a young female. Okay, she's not a man. She's a female. And she's young. So she was proving, wasn't she, to be strong? <laughs> she was proving to be industrious, not lazy. She was proving to be energetic. She, run, she reminds me of my little granddaughter, Shelby. That kid, I wish I could bottle her energy. She runs everywhere. Or just runs. She never stops. So, I mean, do you have little kids like that? <laughs> just tire me out looking at her. Um, but this is how Rebecca was. She's just full of energy. Uh, she is uh, servant-hearted to an amazing degree. And these are all extremely important character traits traits when you're looking for a spouse. Also, she finished what she started. I love that. But she finished, she didn't quit part way through saying something like, ah, I just realized this isn't in my job description. <laughs> I need a salary increase here. You know? Or, or uh, here's what I would have said. Why don't your men over there help me out? I mean, what makes this even more amazing is that he's got servants over there with the camels. 
I wonder if he clued them in what he was doing. I don't know. The whole thing seems strange that they're all watching her do this, right? Typical men, yeah. (laughs) I saw that in your face. (laughs) Uh, But Eliezer, I mean, he could have helped her out. But he was deliberately waiting to see if she would pass what I call the camel test. (laughs) How do you like that one? Have you ever had a camel test? Every day, just about. He was going to see if she would pass. You could call it the water test, but I like the camel test. If she would keep her word and actually water the camels until they had all ten of them done drinking. And it says, I don't know what verse I've lost my place. Is it 21 or something? It says that as he's watching her run back and forth from the well to the trough and up and down the steps. It's verse 21. Yeah, it says that he's wondering at her. I bet his jaw is hanging open as he's watching. Wow, (laughs) this is amazing. Uh, And she proved true to her word because it says in verse 22 that she kept at it until the camels had what? Done drinking. As I said, who would not want a girl like that for their son? Just think, Christmas, Christmas, Thanksgiving, she could do all the work and you could just sit there. (laughs) And then after she finished, just like yesterday, after the kids picked up the whole yard, then they got their reward. Okay, so after she finished, he reaches into a camel saddleback and he gives her a half ounce gold ring, which happens to be a nose ring. And he put it, we'll find out later, he actually put it on her face. They wore a a nose ring on their left nostril. So those of you with nose rings can now say, oh, it's biblical. (laughs) And he gave her two gold bracelets for her arm, each weighing 10 ounces apiece. At today's price of gold, yes, I went on internet, that would be the equivalent of giving her 20, $27,000 worth of jewelry. Now, it wasn't worth that in that day, but still, I might water 10 camels. (laughs) Not the nose ring, but... Well, it was time for Eliezer's critical question. Here it is. Whose daughter art thou? However, notice this. Notice before he receives her answer... The servant asks if he and his men can lodge in her father's house. Verse 23. Because of the fact that he asked if they could lodge in her father's house before she answered his question, whose daughter are you, what does that tell us? Eliezer already obviously believed that she was the one that God had answered his prayer, that she was indeed related to Abraham. And was she? Yes, she was. She answers this. She says, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, which bare unto Nahor. Nahor means snorting. (laughs) I don't know why his daddy named him snorting. Maybe it goes with the camels or something. I don't know. But who was Nahor? Who was Nahor? 
Abraham's brother. Mm-mm-mm. Do you notice she makes no mention of her own name? She doesn't say, I am Rebecca, the daughter of so-and-so. She's humble, isn't she? You know what her name means? Captivating. Eliezer learned now that the captivating, conscientious, humble damsel was the granddaughter of Abraham's brother. She then graciously invited Eliezer and his men to lodge with her family, even assuring him that they had plenty of food and straw for his camels. Well, circumstances had aligned so quickly and so perfectly that Eliezer just couldn't proceed any further without bowing his head and giving an audible uh, prayer of thanksgiving, which she heard. Okay, she hears this because it's audible. And he blesses the Lord God of his master, Abraham. She's hearing that name. You think she ever heard the name Abraham before? Oh, yeah. He blesses the Lord God of his master, Abraham, who had mercifully guided him to the very house of his master's brother. That's in verse 27. So hearing Eliezer's prayer, Rebekah now knows that this elderly man was not only a believer in Yahweh, but he was a servant of her granduncle. Abraham. So in verse 28, we get another glimpse of her energy as she, look at verse 28, what does she do? You'd think she'd be worn out after all that watering of the camels, but she still has energy, so it says she took off running to her mother's house. Now, some commentators make a big deal about the fact that it was her mother's house. Well, women in that day lived in separate tents, houses, than the husbands, because sometimes the husbands had other tents for other women. And Sarah has a different tent. We'll find out at the end of this story. But So she runs to her mother's house to share everything that had happened out at the well. And when her brother, who is her brother? Uh-oh, Laban. Ever hear of that guy before? Sneaky, tricky, conniving Laban is her brother. When he hears of his sister's report, and it makes mention of the fact that he saw the gold jewelry that his sister was wearing, he also ran. (laughs) He runs out to the well to welcome Eliezer and invite him into their home. That's in verse 31. And he says, you know, we have have plenty of food. And he did. When they got there, he he took care of the camels. They didn't need any more water. (laughs) But they fed the camels, and then they provided water for Eliezer and all his men to wash their feet, and a meal was prepared And then the meal was laid out before them to enjoy, verses 32 and 33. But again, we learn why why Abraham had so much confidence in his eldest servant, Eliezer. Um, Because he knew the priority of his mission and the message that he bore. So he surprises his hosts, you know, Rebecca's family, by saying, I will not eat until I have told my errand. Now that's unusual because usually they would eat first and then take care of business matters. Now I'm sure they're thinking he's on here on some kind of mission, you know, an errand of some sort from Abraham. But he says, I'm not going to eat until I take care of my my business, uh, my uh, message. 
Um, and his message was about the greatness of his master and his master's son. You see, he is going to do his best to woo Rebecca to Isaac. So he goes on, he tells the family what his mission assignment in coming to them was. Now, the family is equally interested and anxious to learn the purpose for his long journey, so the meal was postponed. I guess they didn't have a microwave, so they had to heat it up later on. But on behalf of the family, Laban speaks. I think his father, Bethuel, was really old or sickly because Laban seems to take the headship of the family. And he says, verse 33 to Eliezer, speak on. So after introducing himself, and he still doesn't use his name, he calls himself Abraham's servant. Eliezer then spoke of his master's greatness and, and his, his wealth. But he's very careful to give proper credit for his master's blessings to the Lord God. Verse 35. Eliezer also equated the greatness of Abraham to his son, Isaac, because his son was entrusted with everything that his father possessed. Isaac was the sole heir of all of his father's blessings and all of his father's wealth. So in exalting the father, he is also exalting the son. He shares with the family the wonderful news about Isaac's miracle birth. When you're presenting the gospel, do you talk about the virgin birth of Jesus? Yes, you do, because that's why he's sinless. All right, so he shares the news about Isaac's miracle birth to Sarah in her old age. That's in verse 36, which told them that Isaac was a very special man in the plan of God. You know, he was miraculously conceived. And this is how it should be when believers indwelled by the Holy Spirit share the message of Christ with other, others. Our, miss, our mission and our message should center on the miraculously conceived son who is the sole heir to all the blessings and all the wealth of the father. Eliezer, who is picturing the Holy Spirit, doesn't emphasize himself at all. So... What does this tell us? It tells us we need to be careful, cautious about those. Now listen to me. We need to be careful about those who put more emphasis on the spirit than on the son. What would Abraham think if Rebekah was drawn to Eliezer? And desired him more than Isaac. What would Abraham think um, if, <laughs> if Rebekah fell in love with Eliezer? What would the father, God, think of a church that is more drawn to the spirit than to the son? You see, when you see it in a human picture like this, it makes better sense. So, be, beware of such ministries. The Spirit, the, the, God the Spirit and God the Son are equally God. Yes, right? 
but they have different roles within the Godhead, within the Trinity. And the Spirit's role, the Spirit's mission is to exalt the Savior, the Son of God, and draw people to him, the Savior, not draw people to himself. You get it? So be cautious of that. And don't get your theology all mixed up. Well, next, Eliezer summarizes his mission, and he begins with Abraham's instructions to get a wife for Isaac from among his relatives. That explains to them, you know, why he's there. He tells them about his prayer for guidance and how he specifically asked God to show him the right girl and, uh, you know, what he had asked for, that she not only would give him a drink of water, but she'd offer to water all the camels. So when he says that in verses 42 to 44, guess what? For the very first time, Rebecca is hearing the significance of what she had done. She didn't know that yet. She thought she was just being kind and helping out this guy. She she had not known until now that her words and her actions were an answer to somebody else's prayer, a very specific prayer. She didn't know that her words and her actions were all God-orchestrated. Sometimes we do things and we think we're doing them, but who's really doing them through us? God. Everything was God-designed. Um, <clears throat> it was an answer to a very specific prayer by a godly servant of a godly master seeking a godly bride for his miraculously conceived son and the sole heir of his many God-given blessings and riches. So, Wow. I'm sure she's sitting there and going, wow, whoa. She's being drawn. You see what he's doing? She's being drawn to a man that she had never seen. And why wouldn't she be? You know who was at work here? The divine matchmaker was at work here. I don't know why my husband and I were drawn to one another the the night we met. You know, it was just like we were. I called my mom and I said, I met the man I'm going to marry. You know? Divine matchmaker. Well, Eliezer finished his summary of the well encounter by telling how Rebecca, he had prayed this prayer, and then Rebecca is the first one, shows up. Um, even before he's finished praying, and she proceeds to fulfill every single detail of his very specific prayer. So now the time had come, verse 49, for Eliezer to ask the Bethuel family (laughs) if they would deal kindly with him. No, this is verse 49, if they would deal kindly with his master. What does that mean? They understood. This was, in other words, he was making a proposal of marriage. He was asking if they would consent to give Rebecca in marriage to Isaac, his master's son. And he, you know what? He left it like that. That was it. Just like the Holy Spirit, he did not force the issue. He didn't use high-pressure techniques to coerce an acceptance to his invitation. He didn't argue his case or try to bribe her 
for them with false promises. You know, accept him and your life will be a bed of roses and, you know, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and successful the rest of your life, etc., etc. The Spirit does all he can to woo an individual to Christ, but he does not force the decision. He glorifies the Son. He uses the scripture about the Son to convict and to convince that person of their desire for the Son, their need for the Son, but he doesn't force a positive response. Forced decisions, and sometimes you can force decisions, especially with children. Forced decisions are genuinely not are are generally not genuine decisions. I look back at some people I led to the Lord, and I think that's just exactly what it was. (laughs) I led them to the Lord instead of letting the Holy Spirit lead them to the Lord. But this this is what we should do. All right. Yeah, we do, you know, we do want a response, but we we don't force it, and, and we can't force it. Eliezer presented the facts, but he left the result to Rebecca. Now, you might say, Rebecca, she doesn't have any choice in this matter. You know, he's asking her family for her hand in marriage. But you know what? The decision does indeed come down to Rebecca in the, at the end of the chapter. Um, and what do you think if she was over there crying? I was like, I can't leave you, Mom. I can't leave, can't leave you. Or she said, my heart's already on. Uh, bozo <laughs> bozo you know by the way <laughs> nahor had two sons <laughs> named huz and buzz <laughs> remember that if you have twins <laughs> huz and buzz hmm. <laughs> um how did i get on that what was that Oh, this is, yeah, if she, you know, if she was adamant about not going, she has a really close family. I don't think they would have, if she didn't want to go, so really, but it actually does come down to her decision. But the servant's message was convincing, and his gifts to Rebecca and his heavily laden entourage of, of ten camels and all these servant men, that spoke, you know, that confirmed the truth about what he was saying regarding Abraham, and thus, the truth about his son. So the father and brother, that would be Bethuel and Laban, together agree that Rebekah was free to go with Eliezer and marry the master's son. And look at verse 51. They say, as the Lord hath spoken. In other words, this is so obviously the divine matchmaker. We don't have a say in this. So yes, she can go. And that was the final piece of evidence that Eliezer needed. He immediately, this man was a godly man. He knew when to give thanks. So it says he immediately bowed himself to the ground and he worshiped the Lord in verse 52. And then he lavishes her with all kinds of gifts, gifts of silver and gifts of gold. He gives her beautiful new garments to wear. You know, when members of the bride of Christ accept the spirits called to come to Christ by faith, spiritual gifts immediately begin to flow, don't they? Gifts of the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit. And aren't we covered with new raiment that the Lord has provided? Such a beautiful picture. Well, finally, after taking care of all his priority matters, the mission, the message, 
He and his men ate. They had to rewarm the food. They ate, and then they prepared for bed. They went to bed. And with the morning, when the morning came, he has a shocking announcement to make to the family. He wants to go immediately, depart immediately. And as you can imagine, that did not sit very well with the family. And you can pretty much identify with that, can't you? As far as they know, they're never going to see Rebecca again. She is going to live 500 miles away. They don't have cars. If they want to go see her, they got to go get a camel <laughs> or whatever. Um, so Eliezer, remember the Holy Spirit, is meeting with family resistance. Does that ever happen? Mm-hmm. Sure does. I sure had it in my family. Well, and as, as we can really understand their point of view. Um, let me skip some because of the time. So the response, the response of Laban and his mother. Now, Bethuel, the father, I think was sick because he's not here. And I think he had the spiritual influence in the family. But now it's just Laban and the mother. And they actually counter in verse 51, I think it is. They counter the response from the previous night that was given by the father, which was to take her and go, you know, as the Lord hath spoken. But now, basically, Laban is saying, don't take her and go, at least for 10 days, you know, not, not yet. Let her stay at least 10 days. Uh, or he says at first, a few days. Let her stay at least a few days, and then it's like, well, how about 10? <laughs> It's ironic that earlier they said the Lord was leading Eliezer, and now it's like all of a sudden the Lord has stopped leading Eliezer. Eliezer says, I want to go, and they're saying, no, stay. Well, when Laban says stay, it's dangerous. Do you remember the story of Jacob? Remember Laban is the one who switched brides on the wedding night? Do you know how many years poor Jacob wound up serving Laban? And delaying 14 years. This Laban is a tricky little, if he says 10 days, it could have turned to be 10 years or maybe never. So Eliezer's words, hinder me not. You don't want to hinder the Holy Spirit. That tells us he was wise enough to understand that a delay was not going to do anything positive. A delay could be dangerous. If somebody wants to make a delay about Jesus, making, you know, going to Isaac, <laughs> that's dangerous, isn't it? Today is the day of acceptance. So he knew this could be dangerous. Their family would be no more ready for her to depart in 10 days than they were that very morning. In fact, the next 10 days would be harder for them because they would know, oh, they're looking to that last hug, you know, and it would be sad 10 days. Uh, and during those 10 days, they might rethink their decision they might begin to question the swiftness of their decision. Maybe they were wrong to let Rebecca go with a man they didn't really know to a place they had never been in order to marry a man that none of them have ever met. I'm sure they start thinking, what have we done? <laughs> Another danger is what happened to Jacob. You know, that 10 days could become 10 years. So Laban and his mother decide, you know, to give Rebecca the final decision. So they call her, and they probably think, yeah, she's going to agree to a 10-day delay. 
She's got to pack her suitcases. You know, she's got to say goodbye to her friends. So they think there's no problem. Let's get Rebecca. I don't know where she was. I think she was in her tent with her daddy. She loved. She probably had a close relationship with her godly daddy. Anyway, they go get Rebecca and bring her to say, you know, it's going to be your decision. But it's interesting to notice this, that when she's brought forth, Laban doesn't ask her the question that had been discussed with Eliezer. He doesn't ask her, would you like to delay for 10 days before you go with this man? You know what he asks her instead? He says, will you go with this man? That's not a delay question. That is a decision question. That's a decision question about the entire matter of the marriage proposal. But just like Eliezer, Rebecca, she's just like the spirit here. She was neither a procrastinator nor indecisive. And her answer without a pause is what? I will go. And those were the three most important words of her entire existence. Although she never laid eyes on Isaac, she believed the servant's words about him, and she was ready to commit the rest of her life to him. And in this, Rebecca presents a perfect picture of the faith of the church. Because the vast majority of us who make up the church... Other than those early believers, the vast majority of us have never seen our bridegroom, have we? Don't tell me if you have. <laughs> like Abraham, years earlier, when he was willing to go and leave Ur of the Chaldees and everything else behind, Rebecca was ready and willing to leave her father's house and everything familiar to her. To be guided, remember Eliezer's name means God's guide, to be guided by Eliezer to his master's son. Now again, the journey back to Hebron is completely passed over. All We're not told much except that uh, Rebecca and her nurse, that would be her nanny, who she'd probably known her entire life, and her name we learn out later is what? Does anybody know nanny's name? Deborah. Yeah, I heard it. Deborah. Um, She goes with her and her damsels. This tells us her family had some wealth too. She had maid servants. And it says they rode upon the camels and followed the man who was Eliezer. He was their guide, her guide, throughout the journey back. And all the way, don't you know, all the way back, 500 miles, Eliezer talked about the one to whom Rebekah had pledged herself. Think about your life journey since you accepted Christ, all right? This is what we're talking about here. Isaac, as Eliezer is talking to her more and more, I mean, uh, Rebecca, as he's talking more about Isaac, he becomes far more than just a name to her. He becomes laughter and joy to her soul. What does his name mean? Laughter. And she begins to long for that moment when she would meet him face to face. The journey was long, 
Sometimes it seems this life journey is long and hard, and you know, sometimes it seems like it just went like that. But she kept looking at the joy that was set before her, and every day she hungered to learn more and more from Eliezer about the master's son. And not only was Eliezer a good guide, but he made sure that she was safe from thieves and murderers and deceivers that they might meet along the way. Maybe even some of her handmaids would say, what are we doing? Turn back. This is foolish. He protected her from that. No one would pluck her from his hands. And if she got tired and weary and distraught, which I'm sure she did on a camel for 500 miles, Eliezer would come up alongside her, camel to camel, to comfort her. He had a task to complete, and he would perform it to completion. He would keep Isaac's bride until he delivered her without so much as a spot or a blemish. (sighs) Into the safety of her bridegroom's arms. You know what this tells us? If you think that you can lose your salvation, it would be like believing that God the Spirit would have lost Rebekah on the journey to Isaac. Now, although Isaac has been the person everyone has been thinking about and every, the person everyone has been talking about throughout Genesis chapter 24, remember, the Bible has not mentioned his appearance since when? Since Mount Moriah and his almost sacrifice. But he reappears in verse 63 and is eventide. And he's out in a field meditating. You know, opposites attract. (laughs) Isaac is a mama's boy. Rebecca was a daddy's girl. She's busy, busy, energetic, running here, running there. He is meditative. He's out in the field. He's a quiet, spiritual man who spent his time thinking about the things of God. He must have, as he's out there meditating with his eyes down, perhaps praying, he must have heard the sound of camel's hooves beating on the ground or maybe the faint sound of voices in the distance because we're told in verse 63 that he lifted up his eyes, and behold, the camels were coming. (laughs) And at the very same time, it says, Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And their eyes met face to face, and it was such an electrifying moment. Do you know what happened? Rebekah fell off the camel. She really did. It says she lighted off the camel. You know, some people say, is it okay to smoke cigarettes? And then they say, yeah, Rebecca lit a camel, lit off off the camel. 
<laughs> but the word where it says that she lighted off the camel, verse 64, really in Hebrew means she fell off the camel. She slid off the camel. You see, when the church, the bride of Christ, sees him for the very first time, we are either going to fall out or slide off these bodies, these camel skin bodies, (laughs) dead or alive, that we've been riding on the whole journey. That's, That's cool. That's cool. You know why else they say she slid off the camel as soon as her eyes saw him? Because she did not want to be higher up than him when she met him. And she would have been up there on the camel. It also says immediately she put a veil over her face. This all speaks so beautifully of Rebecca, the church. And she knew the answer, but she asked it anyway. She knew the answer before she asked it, but what does she ask Eliezer? What man is this that walketh in the field to meet us? Verse 65. She knew that he was definitely too young to be 140-year-old Abraham. And he wasn't dressed like a field hand. She knew exactly who he was. So Eliezer's smiling answer did not surprise her. When he said, it is my master. The journey to the promised land, the journey to Isaac that Rebecca had accepted to make with Eliezer at her side all the way was long and tiresome. But the joy that consumed her when that journey was over and she saw Isaac face to face was far more than she could ever have imagined. So shall it be with the church, right? When at long last the church finishes her long, difficult journey. Has the church had a difficult journey? Has she been persecuted all along the way? When the church finishes her journey and Jesus uh, arrives to greet her, She's going to declare, and we're going to be part of that. I hope you're part of the church. The church is going to declare, as did the queen of Sheba, when she finally met King Solomon. That's another picture, the church and Christ. What did the queen of Sheba say? The half was not told me. Isaac brought Rebekah into Sarah's tent. It tells us, which had been empty for three years. As the church now dwells in the tent presently vacated by Israel, so Rebecca lived in Sarah's tent. Now, listen to this Sarah did not, I mean, Rebecca did not replace Sarah. Because Sarah was the wife of Abraham. Get it? Israel is not replaced by the church. Because the church is not espoused to the father. The church is espoused to the son. 
The church is simply taking over the responsibilities for for now, during the church age, of Israel. Because Israel has died, spiritually speaking. But like Sarah, Israel will come back to life. She will. I mean, she's already like the Valley of Dry Bones. She's looking like she, all she needs is that H, <laughs> the breath of life. She will come back to life. But in the meantime, Christ, pictured by Isaac, is greatly comforted by the church. He, Rebecca brought him comfort. Although he had lost his mother, He gained his bride, and she brought great comfort to him. And then the account ends by telling us that who loved who first? Do you notice one of the requirements for a godly spouse was not love? Did you notice that? Love comes later. It tells us that he loved Rebecca. We love him because he first loved us. And this is the second time that the word love appears in the Bible. The first was back last time we talked. It was in chapter 22, verse 2. That was regard to the love of Abraham for Isaac, representing the love of God the Father for the Son. And yet, as much as the Father loved the Son, he was willing to sacrifice him. Why? Why was he willing to sacrifice his beloved son? Because in sacrificing him, he would redeem a people for his son, a people who would love his son and serve his son and be wed to his son. So the second time the word love appears in the scripture, here it points to the love of Christ for his bride, the church. And it is also perfect I just can't believe it. It's incredible, isn't it? The word of God. And that's just the top of it, like the ocean. Let's pray. Father, we just cannot praise and worship you enough. If I could, I'd get just down on my my, uh, head, prostrate myself before you because you loved me when I was yet a sinner. And your spirit sought me on behalf of your son. Didn't deserve it, just like Rebecca didn't deserve it. Thank you, but thank you. And thank you that even though we haven't seen you, we have that day of looking forward to when we will see you, we will behold you face to face and with joy unspeakable and full of glory. I just cannot imagine how magnificent that is going to be. And we can be confident of this very thing, that he which began a good work in each of us will complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. So much to rejoice about. And we're going to go into the resurrection season, so may we be faithful to be witnesses for you to our family and friends until we meet again. And we just love you and praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.